Take a Bible out this morning and find the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the eighth and final week for our series that we've titled Wisdom. The previous seven weeks we've spent in the book of Proverbs. This morning we're going to move out of the Old Testament into the New Testament. We're going to look at one of the hallmark passages in the New Testament about wisdom. And so you're going to need a Bible and you're going to need to find the book of 1 Corinthians. There's some notes in the outline uh, in the bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, you can do that. Over the last couple of months, we have tried to listen to biblical wisdom. We've also listened to the voices of a few other folks as we've talked about different topics. We've talked about uh, wisdom generally, and I gave you a definition from dictionary.com. We talked about money, and we made reference to Bob Marley, the great reggae artist. We talked about marriage, and we listened to Honest Abe Lincoln. We talked about pride, and we listened to a, a French Catholic priest who spoke at the funeral of the Sun King, Louis XIV. We talked about parenting and Murphy's Law. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. This morning, I just want to back it up and say, I don't have any secular wisdom to share with you. I just want us to listen to Jesus himself. And Jesus says this in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is telling us that every single person chases something in your life. There will be something that is the most important thing in your life, in your heart, what you give your time to, what you give your money to, what you give your energy to. You're going to chase something. And what Jesus is saying is the very worst thing that could happen for some of us is that we would actually get the thing that we're chasing. You spend your whole life chasing something that you think will give you purpose and happiness and meaning and value, and you end up getting it, and in the end, Jesus says, you very well could lose your soul. That's a verse that should sober us, that should make us think seriously about wisdom and think about our own lives. We want to make sure this morning, in one last sermon on wisdom, we want to make sure that we're chasing wisdom. And we're going to see that when you chase wisdom correctly, you're going to end up chasing Jesus. Here's our definition of wisdom. We've talked about this every week. Biblical wisdom is fearing God, knowing God's will, and living your life in light of God's will. Okay? All of that involved in the biblical view of of wisdom. It starts with fearing God, and if that's going to happen, you've got to know the truth about who God is, and you have to know the truth about who you are as a sinner. You've got to know God, and you've got to know yourself, and the response to that is going to be fear. You've got to know His will, not in some mystical sense where you say, God, tell me some secret, beam down the information or the plan to me, but where you say, God, this is what you have revealed to me in your word. And I know your word, and I've read it, and I've thought about it, and I've prayed about it, and I've studied it. I've learned it. I know what your will is. And to be truly wise, you have to actually live it. Right? If you come, and you can sing all the songs, and you can fill in all the blanks, and you know all the answers, and all, all the right 
fill in the blanks and, and everything, and you, you can check off all those boxes, but you don't actually live it when you leave this place. The Bible says you're a fool. doesn't matter what your IQ is. doesn't matter what your SAT score is or your ACT score is. doesn't matter how successful you are in work or how great everyone else thinks you are. If you don't actually live it, the Bible says that you're actually a fool. One thing I want you to remember is we've talked about wisdom. We've been in the book of Proverbs. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus was around. And I I just want to share one more quote with you from Jesus. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Law or the prophets is a, a Hebrew way of referring to the Old Testament scriptures. I haven't come to get rid of that, but I've come to fulfill them. Jesus doesn't want us to take anything we've seen in Proverbs, rip it up, and start over. But he also wants us to understand, I'm the embodiment. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. And no person can claim to be wise in the biblical sense if you don't come to the Father through Jesus. We're not getting rid of Proverbs, but we're most certainly adding to it. We're seeing it lived out in the perfect man. And we're hearing the good news about Jesus Christ that is the wisdom and the power of God, as we'll see this morning. So I want you to take your Bible. We're going to listen to what Paul says about Jesus and about the gospel, how it all ties into wisdom. And we're going to read 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through the first couple of verses in chapter 5. So you follow along as we read the scripture. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness 
and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my tongue were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Father, we've spent two months talking about wisdom, looking in the Scriptures, studying the book of Proverbs. This morning our prayer is simple, that you would show us wisdom in your Son, that you would show us true wisdom in the Gospel. Father, that this morning your Spirit would call out to those who are lost, and you would save them. As we talk about Jesus and Him crucified, that that would be sufficient for us as individuals and for us as a church. Father, let us never boast in who we are or in what we've done, but let our boast always be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, make us wise people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you about a religious group known as Scientology. There's a man named Lafayette Ron Hubbard. He usually goes by L. Ron Hubbard. He was originally a science fiction novelist. And he's the founder of what we call Scientology. And the picture on the left is their main headquarters in Hollywood. Some of you may have have been to California and you've seen this building. L. Ron Hubbard. He founds this faith, and I'm just going to do my best to give it to you in a nutshell. Okay, it's, it's always dangerous to try to boil any religious movement down to a couple of minutes, but here's my best crack at it. Okay? Here's Scientology in a nutshell. In the beginning, there were Thetans, T-H-E-T-A-N-S, Thetans. There was these Thetans, and they were semi-divine, uh, very powerful beings. And they were bored. The Thetans were bored. So they got together and they said, we should create a game of sorts. And so they created this world, the physical universe, the earth, the, the stars and the galaxies and all of it. And they created people. And people were originally like these characters that they played in a game. So you got the Thetans and they're bored, so they create this game and they're playing this game of the world. And it's sort of like a, a board game or a Lego set or something like that. And they played that for a while and it was good, but then they got bored again. The game got boring. You know how that goes. Your kids get a game out, you set it up, you play for about 20 seconds, and they say, this is boring. I want to do something else. So they got bored. And one of them said, hey, I have an idea. What if rather than play the game externally, what if we actually got into the game, like the original virtual reality? Like what if we became the characters in the game and played it from the inside instead of from the outside? And somebody said, one of the Thetans, I guess, said that sounds like a great idea. So that's exactly what they did. They entered into the game and they took on the characters that they had created, meaning these Thetans found themselves inside human body and they started playing the game of life. And then a tragedy took place. And the tragedy was that over time, the Thetans forgot that they were playing a game. They forgot that they were Thetans, and they began to think that they were really people. And according to Scientology, they became crusted over. You can't see these. They're not like barnacles on a ship. But they became crusted over with something called engrams. Engrams. 
And it's kind of like a, a spiritual barnacle of sorts that sort of covers you out on the, on the outside so that you become hard to reality and you forget that on the inside you're a thetan. And the whole point of Scientology is that if you have enough money and the time, you can go to one of their therapists slash pastors and they have something called an E-meter. And you think I'm making this up. This is 100% true. There's two metal cans, and you hold the cans in your hand. They have these wires that go into this machine, and it's got all these little gizmos and bells and whistles and stuff. And you have a little therapy session, and as you talk, the thing goes off, and the therapist slash pastor looks at it, knows how to read it, and says to you, these are where your engrams are, and we can get rid of them, so that you can go back to being an operating thetan. That's it. You hear that and you say, that's the most preposterous, ridiculous, silly, crazy. Like, no wonder the guy was a science fiction author. He just made it up. What a nutty story. And people actually believe it. Let me tell you about another faith. Okay? Forget that. Let me tell you about another faith. This faith began about 2,000 years ago, give or take. There was 12 guys that started it. One of them sort of lost his way before it even got going, so we'll boil it down to 11 guys. They were a hodgepodge group of fellows. Some fishermen, tax collectors, political activists, all sorts. They got together, and originally their little movement was called The Way. The Way. And in their minds, they weren't starting anything new. It was just a natural outgrowth of what had come before them. But in everyone else's mind, they were some sort of strange cult. I mean, people really thought that they were wacky. So you had 11 guys, and they're going around, and they're saying to the world a couple thousand years ago, hey, there was a man. He lived not too long ago. He was God and man. Not 50-50, not 75-25, not 90-10. He was 100% God and 100% man. You say, really? Who was he? Well, he was this poor, homeless, homeless Jewish guy. You say, you think a poor, homeless Jewish man was God on the earth? Yeah, that's right. And the crazy thing is, at the end of his life, the Romans executed him. They killed him. They put him up on a cross. They stripped him naked. They beat the snot out of him. And they killed him. And even... More amazing, on top of that, when they put him in the grave three days later, he, he came back to life. And the cool thing is that because in his life, not one time ever, never, 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 never did he sin in anything that he did, in anything that he said, in anything that he thought, in anything that he felt. He never committed a sin. So when those Roman guys killed him on the cross, he was actually dying for my sins and your sins. And you can be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life if you will turn from them, confess them, admit them, and put your faith in this poor, homeless Jewish guy. Well, where is he? I'd like to talk to him. Oh, he's back in heaven now. He's gone. You can't see him. But he sent his spirit, and his spirit lives inside of us. That's our story, right? Sometimes we forget how crazy it is. Like, when they walked around... And they started telling people that story. People thought they were nuts. They thought they were crazy. They thought they were this bizarre, aberrant little cult group. They popped up all throughout human history. And they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. And they thought this is another group of these nuts. Here we are 2,000 years later. Billions of people on earth hear that story and say, I believe it. It's true. 
And the question for you this morning is just to simply think about the basic story of Christianity, the basic story of the gospel. It is not complicated, but it is quite a story. Admit it, it's quite a story. That thousands of years ago, a poor, homeless Jewish man was fully God in human flesh, fully God and fully man. He never sinned, not a single time in his entire life. And when he was executed by the Romans, it wasn't just a criminal, a common criminal execution, but it was a sacrificial atonement for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And he died, and they put him in the tomb, and he rose three days later, and he ascended back to heaven where he's waiting. He's interceding for his people, and he's going to come back someday for his people. And the message of the gospel is if you believe that, if you turn from your sins and believe that and accept it in your life, you can have eternal life, not just in the future, but right now today. And the question is, when we talk about the gospel, that very simple message, what do you think about it? What do you think about it? And in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is drawing a line in the sand right down the middle, and he's saying, look, there's two, there's two ways you can go on this deal. Here's what the gospel is. You can either walk away from it and think it's crazy, or you can know it as the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so what I want us to do this morning is to walk through this passage, 1 Corinthians 1, the first part of chapter 2. And I just want to ask you some very simple questions. It's going to be a little bit different than a lot of the the sermons we have on Sunday morning. I just want to ask you some questions, and I want you to think. And I want you to listen to what Paul's answer is as we think about these questions. And I want you to think about what your answer is to some of these questions. So question number one, what do you think about the word of the cross? What do you think about the word of the cross? Look at verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Right? We've spent two months talking about wisdom and contrasting that with foolishness. And Paul says, here's, here's the ultimate litmus test. The word of the cross, the story of Jesus, the gospel. Do you think that it's folly? Or do you look at it and say, that's the power of God for salvation? I want you to understand something. Paul was not tone deaf. Right? Paul knew when he went out and preached, he knew what people thought about him. In particular, he knew what people thought about his message. He knew when I go out and speak about this word of the cross, it is foolishness to most people. The Jews are not interested. They want a Messiah king who will come and kick the Romans out of their homeland. And give them power. That's what the Jews are looking for. They are not looking for a poor, homeless man executed by the Romans on a cross. They're not interested in that. And the Romans aren't interested in it either. They follow Caesars. They trust in generals. They believe in the power of the sword. They're not interested in some poor, Jewish, homeless guy who died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. In the backwoods of the empire. They don't care about that. It's folly to those who are perishing. He knew what people thought about his message. And here's the crazy thing. When he went around and he started preaching, there were actually people who believed it. He starts talking about this foolish message. Paul has a product that no one wants to buy. And yet when he puts it on sale, there's actually people who say, I want that. I believe it. It's true. 
The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What do you think when you hear the word of the cross? I know you're here on a Sunday morning on a holiday weekend. You guys are like the elite of the elite. You guys are serious. You're the real deal. So my hunch is that most of you hear the word of the cross and you say, man, it's the power of God. I believe it. But I'm realistic enough to know that some of you are in the room and truth be told, strip away all the external, you know the right answer, you know what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to say, where you're supposed to be. The truth is, when I start talking about the word of the cross, you say, that's silly stuff. That's silly. That's, those stories for children. That doesn't affect me in my day to day. I'm talking about some guy 2,000 years ago, died on a cross, came back to life. Look, it's a nice story, but it's just a story. And you hear it, and you think it's foolishness. Others of you hear it, and you say, that story is true. I believe it. And some of you in this room, many of you in this room would say, that story has taken hold of my life and changed my life. It's not just intellectually true, but it's a powerful story that has changed me. Not just superficially, like change my habits or change my routine or change something external, but it's changed me on the inside. And you know that it's not foolishness, it's the power of God for salvation for those who believe. So here's the answer. Those who are being saved see the word of the cross as the power of God. Those of you who are in the room, who in your heart say, it's just a foolish story. Those of you who are in the room who say, look, I believe it's true, but it doesn't have anything to do with my day-to-day life today. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would open your eyes and change your heart this morning so that you would leave this place saying, no, 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 it's more than a story. It's more than just an ancient true story. It's a powerful story. It has the power to change me. Question number two, how do you think a person can come to know God? How do you think a person can come to know God? Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Remember, Paul is writing in an age and a day where there are philosophers everywhere. Philosophy for this and philosophy for that and arguments about who's right and what's true and what's real and how does it all work and what's the point of all of it. Paul says, look, the world did not know the, does not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. And again, he knows what people think about it. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's folly to the Gentiles. The Jews aren't interested, and the Gentiles laugh at it. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Human knowledge and learning, and if we can just say earthly wisdom, is really a remarkable thing. Put a picture up on the screen. Some of you know what this is. This is the Hubble Telescope. And we launched it up into space a long time ago, and it's just up there floating around, and 
It's got this little mission, and it takes pictures of things, and it sends these pictures back. Here are a couple of recent pictures just sent back in the last couple of weeks from Hubble. This is the Lagoon Nebula, and you say, what am I looking at? I, I don't have any idea what you're looking at. It's pretty, and they tell me, you get on the Hubble website, that the picture on the left was taken with natural light, real light. Real is probably not the right word. Natural light, visible light. And the picture on the right is taken with infrared light. And I look at them and I think, well, it looks like it would be backwards to me. But I read it five times. That's what it says. One's visible light. One's infrared light. And there's, this is a galaxy, the, the Lagoon Nebula. It's 6,000 light years from Earth. And at the current speed that we can travel in space, it'll only take you about 37,200 years to go one light year. So if you want to visit, you better go today. You better, you better take off. And it's amazing. And you look at that and you say, it's just out there. And it's so far away. And I'm not trying to toot our own horn, but go back to the picture of the telescope. I mean, we made that. I've read this book cover to cover. There are no instructions for telescopes. There's no you know, NASA appendix in the back of your Bible that says, okay, this is how you build the Hubble and this is what you do. Like, we made that. Human beings made that. It's impressive, right? We can make something and we can launch it into space and it sends us these pictures and here we are in Odessa, Texas, Emmanuel Baptist Church and I can put the pictures up and we can say, wow, we here in this room, it's a little bit too hot this morning. Apparently we can't figure out air conditioner technology, but we can launch a satellite up into space And we can see a galaxy 6,000 light years away. That's amazing. What about a little bit closer to home? Let's go to Dubai, to the Burj Khalifa. You guys flying through Dubai? Some of our mission teams this summer, the team going to Kenya is going to go through Dubai. I'm kind of jealous because you guys will get to see this. That's a big building, okay? It's the biggest building in the world. It's 2,717 feet tall. If you lay it down on its side, it's over half a mile long or tall. It's really, really, really big. And human beings made that. That's kind of impressive, right? That we can use our brains and we can figure out foundations and structures and we have engineers that can build stuff like this and cranes. I mean, it's an amazing human accomplishment. Not to mention, let's just bring it even closer to home, The fact that almost all of you in this room are carrying around a supercomputer in your pocket, your smartphone. I mean, we just take it for granted what we can do on a smartphone. I read this week that your smartphone is thousands of times more powerful than the combined computing power that NASA had when they sent the first Apollo missions into space. In the palm of your hand, you have the computing power to launch thousands of simultaneous Apollo missions from the computing power that you hold in your hand. Compared to these big rooms and the screens and the desks and all the stuff, you've got thousands of times more computing power right in the palm of your hand. Look, human beings can do amazing things. There's at least one thing we will never be able to figure out on our own. This infuriates millions of people who live on this earth. I'll be honest with you, it, in, it infuriates some people who live on this earth and attend church every single week. But here it is. It doesn't matter how far we can see into space. It doesn't matter how high our buildings get. And it doesn't matter how fast our phones are. We will never, on our own, 
be able to make our way back to God. You can't do it. You don't have the ability on your own. Paul says, look, there have been philosophers for thousands of years. And God's plan, the way God set it up to work, is that in human wisdom, we don't know God. On our own, you can't know him. You don't have the ability. I don't have the ability. Paul says you need two things. If you, as a sinful human, are going to know the holy God in a saving way, here's the two things that you need. One, knowing God requires the external call of the gospel, and two, the internal call of the Holy Spirit. Both of those things have to happen if any person, any person, educated, uneducated, young, old, American, Asian, it doesn't matter. If any person is going to know God, those two things have to happen. The external call of the gospel and the internal call of the Holy Spirit. Look how Paul describes it. Look what he says in verse 21 towards the end of that verse. He says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I'm going out and I'm preaching a message that by human standards is foolishness. It is foolish. I'm selling something that no one's looking to buy. And yet when I go out and preach it, God uses that, that external preaching of the gospel to save people. So one, you've got to have the external proclamation of the gospel. But you know that's not enough. You know it's not enough because there's people who come sit in this room on a Sunday morning and they hear the gospel and they walk out unchanged. It goes in one ear, out the other. So the second thing you need is the call of the Holy Spirit. Paul describes that in verse 24. He says, to those who are called, Jews or Greeks, it doesn't matter. The ones who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Two things have to happen before any person knows God. You've got to hear the external call of the gospel. Somebody has to tell you the good news about Jesus. And secondly, the Spirit of God has to call you. Spirit of God has to change your heart. If you want to go back to the Old Testament, you can look at Ezekiel, and it's described as a a heart transplant on a spiritual level. God taking out your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. God does that. The Spirit of God does that. And both of those things are required for somebody to know God. Look, the world hates it. What I just said, the world hates it. And the world wants you to believe the idea, no, 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 no. You don't have to hear about Jesus to go to heaven, and the Spirit of God doesn't have to do anything in your life for you to go to heaven. The world hates that idea, and the world wants you to believe any old road up the mountain is going to lead up to the top of the mountain. Look, you're going up your road, I'm going up my road, it's all good, we're going to meet at the top. All roads lead to God. All paths lead to the same place. And Paul says, you can call me foolish. You can reject it and walk away from it. But in human wisdom, you will not know God. The only way that you can know God is by hearing the gospel message and by the Spirit of God calling you to salvation. So how do you think a person comes to know God? Are you willing this morning to admit, I don't have it in myself to make things right with God. I need the gospel message and I need the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Last question, what do you think about the proclamation of the gospel? What do you think about the proclamation of the gospel? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
Paul says, I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Can we just be honest for a second? That passage, in particular verse 1, where Paul says, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. That verse takes 99% of church strategy in the United States of America and tosses it out the window. He's saying, I'm not trying to attract you to this. I'm not trying to be relevant to your culture. I'm not trying to put on some sort of show that will entertain you and hold your attention. I'm not giving away free TVs to attract you here and then hope that maybe I can sort of pull a, a, a trick on you and slide the gospel in the back door. He says, I'm not coming with any of that. I don't want your faith to rest on human wisdom. I don't want your faith to rest on how cool or creative or funny or engaging I am. I want your faith to rest on the power of God. And so he said, I came to you and I knew nothing except Jesus and him crucified. This is a question for Christians in the United States. This is a question question that we have to wrestle with as things become more and more difficult for believers in this country. What is our strategy? What is our plan? What is our hope? If you adopt Paul's, it's simply to say, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. God's people know Jesus Christ and him crucified is enough. Listen, you can have the programs and the show and the flash and the giveaways and the bells and the whistles and all the stuff. You can have all that stuff and you can grow a crowd. But if you want to grow a church and you want to make disciples, this is what you need. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's worth wrestling with in your own heart. What do I need Do I need the the latest, greatest self-help book on the the bestseller section of of Mardell? Do I need some kind of camp or retreat that's going to really get me fired up? Or do I just need Jesus? And it's a question that we have to wrestle with as a church. What is our hope in? What What is our plan going forward as a church family? And if we adopt this plan, the plan is Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Listen, we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning, and if we're saying anything when we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying this, Jesus is enough. doesn't need to to be my goodness added to it. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about. The Lord's Supper is about saying, I don't have any goodness to add to it. I believe that Jesus, his body was broken for me and his blood was shed for me. I don't have anything to add to that. Jesus is enough. Is enough. This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you hear the gospel story and you say, that's powerful, it's powerful in my life, we invite you to participate. If you think about this gospel message and you say, this is the only way that I can know God, I can't do it on my own, I've got to come through Jesus, we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper. If in your heart you say, Jesus is enough, I know that Jesus is enough, 
to make things right between me and the Father. We invite you to take the Lord's Supper this morning. So I'm going to ask you to bow. We're going to pray together. I'm going to ask our guys to make their way to the back as they get ready to serve.